been in the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to be back there today. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and take that out, whatever form you have it in. And we're going to land in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. We've been walking along this process and along the story uh, that is the last narrative before Christ. Uh, It's not in uh, in chronologically in the Old Testament, as a matter of fact. Uh, It's not placed there, but it actually tells us the story of God's people uh, and an an individual that was called and burdened and broken uh, to lead God's people into the future and to basically remember their identity, remember the promise of God, and remember what it's like to walk in His presence and to become what God had actually promised them to be, which is to be a blessing to the nations, a shining light on the hill uh, so that others could see His glory. And as we walked along that uh, trek, uh, they've, they've experienced a lot of different things. I mean, it went from uh, the initial stages of uh, you know a guy, Nehemiah, living in anonymity and as a cupbearer to the king. You get him going along and boldly asking, making a request to be able to get an endorsement to actually go do this thing of rebuilding the wall that had been torn down for over a hundred years around Jerusalem. He travels the distance, gets all the resources, then he surveys the wall, he goes before the people, he brings everybody together, he casts a compelling vision. Uh, They go to work on the wall where we talked about last week and everybody's got their section of the wall and then they begin to be ridiculed and the death threats come. Uh, The wall gets to half its height and the energy of the laborers are giving out. And through all those things, uh, it seemed like every time a challenge came in front of them, they met the challenge and God met the challenge through them. Uh, it, it's just a, a, an unbelievable story. It's one of my favorite stories. And with every turn, it seems like something is threatening the work of God through his people and the threatening of the building of the wall. And when you get to Nehemiah chapter 5, you actually get uh, another one of those threats. But it's a little different than the other threats. I mean, uh, I call it uh, this thing that I've experienced is in a lot of areas of my life, it's just this drift uh, that happens. Uh, It's this drift. I've experienced it personally in my life um, uh, at times, at different stages, at different ages of my life where I've wanted some things to change. I've made promises to myself and to God and perhaps others. Hey, I want to be different about this. I want to do some things uh, differently. I want to live differently. I want to live for more. I want to live for God in a certain area of my life or uh, in a certain circumstance, and I make those promises, but I've experienced this thing I call the drift, where maybe it's a a few weeks, uh, sometimes it may be a couple uh, months, or maybe it's a few years that you wake up and you're like, man, um, whatever happened to that vision? Whatever happened to all those promises I made, I thought I would be in a different spot than I, than I am right now. Maybe you're in your 30s and you're experiencing that, 40s, you're experiencing that, 50s, you're experiencing that personally. We all experience those things. We make commitments, we make promises, uh, we have goals and dreams, aspirations, even for really good things with God, but we all battle this drift, this gravitational pull that we experience where we never gravitate toward vision. We always get pulled and drift away from vision and drift toward chaos. Chaos. We put plans in place. We rather rarely implement them, or at least for very long. They're really hard to keep. But I've, I've also experienced that in parenting. Um, you know, parenting, if you've ever just cleaned house, you know, or tried to clean house with kids, you know, you clean the house up, and 20 minutes later, you walk back in, you're like, what in the world happened? You know, it looked like somebody vomited toys everywhere or something like that, or actual vomit uh, some, sometimes, as some would say. You walk back in, it's like, man, we, we keep trying to put this together. We, we try to raise our kids a certain way. We We said we're going to invest in them this way. We did the baby dedication. We got them to church. But somehow along the path, drift happened. 
we drifted into chaos and we wake up sometimes in teenage years and college years and we look back at our kids and our family and we're like, man, I thought we would be this kind of family. And I don't know how to go back and turn back the clock, but it seems like I've lost vision. It seems like I've lost our way. But not just individuals, not just families. I think we see it in church a lot. I mean, uh, churches uh, uh, very rarely start with saying, man, we want to be a place where people can just come and gossip uh, about one another. We want a place that we don't really want to go to on Sundays. You know, we want to build a place where nobody gets changed, no life change ever happens. We want to get a place where nobody ever hears the gospel. Nobody ever starts that way. And, you know, in the beginning stages, you start with these big aspirations. Man, if God's going to move, we're excited about it. We can get everybody together around the vision. But sometimes a year goes by or perhaps a few decades and the church goes dormant. They've drifted from the vision. Good intention, big vision, but big drift. And they drift into chaos, and oftentimes they become a place where it becomes decades, and they don't see one person's life change, and they wonder why they exist, and the church begins to decline. If you've ever been a part of that as an individual, as a family, or maybe that's been your experience in church, and that's why you're like, hey, that's why I don't even go to church. I'm just visiting today just to, you know, because somebody invited me, but that's why I don't even get involved in that kind of stuff. It's because of that drift you're talking about. It's loss of vision, a loss of way. Well, if you've ever experienced that on any level, that's what Nehemiah chapter 5 is going to represent for us today. Big vision, big threats on the outside, big obstacles, continually meeting those things, these external threats. But along the way, what seems to be subversive and insidious among the people of God is this little small thing that begins to grow. And it was not an external threat. It was an actually an internal threat. And the ironic thing, out of all the things that they had faced, out of all the things they had faced that were out of their control, it seems, this is actually the one thing that was within their control. This was the one thing that actually was the greatest threat, and it was actually something that they could actually change about themselves, that God could actually do in them. And while they were diverted and distracted by all the external things, the enemy did what he so oftentimes does is he came and he planted a seed that became the greatest threat to stop the building of the wall and the building of the presence of God in his people. So if you've ever experienced that, we're going to walk along and we're going to see where it began to surface in the people of God. And then hopefully extrapolate or draw some principles out that will help us to see in our life how we can get back on track when we drift and what God could do in a group of people that actually turns back and takes responsibility for the vision that he's given them. Watch what way it's revealed in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. You begin to see the first hint of the problem. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Now it doesn't seem like much because, I mean, people argue about things and there's interpersonal relationships that are often uh, riddled with strife. Anytime you get a large group of people together, and this was a big operation, this is a big wall, you got different families, different sections, seven gates, all this rubble. But something was going on here that it gets the attention and the inerrant word of God to be mentioned in the memoirs of Nehemiah that he says, there was a moment when I heard the men and their wives raise a great outcry, and it was not against the things that you would think. I mean, it was not against the obstacles I just mentioned. I mean, the the death threats, they met those. 
they went back to back and they carried sword and shield and hammer and nails and they put the beams, the bolts, and the bars in place and they fought for one another. It wasn't even their energy level that would seem like a great threat because I mean, it just costs so much energy and time to invest in the things of God, it seems, and to really work and give yourself away uh, on a time level and resource level to the work of God. But in, rather than Rather than pull back when they were tired, actually what they did, they doubled their efforts. I mean, get that at, at, at your job when you go to your boss and say, man, I'm tired, I need a break. And he says, I tell you what, we're going to add four hours a day to your schedule. But that's what they did, and the wall kept getting built. I mean, it wasn't even the initial apathy that seemed like a really big distraction and obstacle that was an external thing. It was just present. They had been living in this situation for so long, and then to get them to recapture a vision, that seems hard enough. But that's not the problem in Nehemiah chapter 5. None of those things were enough to stop the building of the wall. But there was something that was happening, a complaint that had arisen that was about to threaten an overall project, and it was the drift that was about to happen to erode not just the foundation of the wall as the wall was going up, but it actually erode the foundation of what God was really trying to do, which was not build a physical structure at all. He was trying to rebuild his people. And as this begins to erode, even as the wall begins to go up, you begin to realize that this is not a problem long ago, but this is a problem for us today. What was the problem? Well, let's see the situation this way. Why did this outcry happen? You get to see it in verse 2. Some of them were saying, go back to verse 2, there we go. We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and to stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Now, what has not been really talked about up until this point in Nehemiah chapter 5, there was a great famine in the land that Nehemiah was coming in. He wasn't coming into the best of circumstances. I mean, things were not cruising along. There was a famine that had been going on. That meant that it's not like for us, I mean, on the way home, like, hey, you're going to run by Target? Yeah, I'll pick up something for lunch. I mean, this is not one of those things where you can just run by the supermarket. You had to plan and prepare for the future. And what that typically meant is you would store up grain and store up food. And grain became such a precious commodity that you didn't share with a lot of people. You took care of your own family. It was a very communal society where they took care of their own and those kind of things. But what was happening here is Nehemiah comes in and he gives them this big task of building the wall on the hills of a famine. And so there wasn't much grain to begin with. And so in the midst of that, what they were doing is they were actually leaving their livelihood to build the wall. Have you ever tried to do two major projects? at one time. I mean, it's a huge ordeal. I mean, remember what the clock was like, the, the work calendar was like? I mean, that from sunup to sundown, they're working on this wall. What's happening in their homes? What's happening in their fields while they're doing the work of the Lord? Well, what they're experiencing is the kids are getting hungry. The bellies are growling. And they're not able to supply and fulfill the needs as parents and as families for their very own kids. And so the complaint says, we're, we, don't, we need more grain, we've got to eat, we're having to mortgage our fields and our vineyards, and then you get into verse 3 and following, and you get to see 4 and following, you begin to see a little bit more crisp review of exactly what the problem was. So others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Okay, so first of all, they have to leave their fields and do the work of the Lord because they're trying to be obedient. And then the problem was that while King Artaxerxes actually endorsed the project of building the wall, he was not going to finance it by removing the tax burden on the people. There was a heavy tax 
on their land. And so they couldn't produce crops, which means they couldn't sell crops, which means they couldn't pay their taxes. And so they were having to mortgage their fields and their homes just to pay the external tax from the king that sent all this lumber. It's a, if you've got to admit, it would be a confusing place to be. Am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I, I'm doing all this work, but my family is suffering, and I'm having to go into this great debt just to pay the king's tax. I mean, this is a dire situation. Everything's on hock down at the pawn shop. There's nothing in the refrigerator, and we're having this problem, and we need some answers because we're trying to follow God. To make matters worse, you begin to see how bad it really got. In verse 5 and following, it says, Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. It had gotten so bad that they had to indenture their kids into slavery in order to pay the debts. Many of them, uh, many of the daughters were actually being sold into marriage into other Jewish families in order to make, basically uh, alleviate the pressure of the mortgages and the liens that were on their property. But there was no other recourse. They had nothing else to do. They were powerless. Now, if you've ever been in a financial uh, spot where it's been hard, there's this feeling of powerlessness. I'm working hard. I'm trying to follow you, God. I'm trying to do the things that I believe you're about. I'm trying to be obedient. I'm sacrificing for this thing. But what I'm getting in return is I'm getting nothing in return. As a matter of fact, the very things that are my most prized possessions, it seems like I'm losing hold on them. Our daughters and our sons are going into slavery, and we are powerless to do anything while we're building this structure that's been laying in ruins for over a hundred years. And so, let me just ask you a question. If you're Nehemiah, and you hear this, what do you think? I mean, what do you feel? I mean, obviously, you're worried about your project. I mean, you're worried about what you're trying to do. But for Nehemiah, I believe there was something deeper in the emotion that's conveyed in the next verse. It shows us and begins to show us the significance and the cause of the drift. And it shows us the severity of what it's like for the people of God to lose sight of the principles of God, to basically lay waste to their own, and to harm their own futures, but to be so deceived, to wake up and not understand exactly what it is they're actually doing. So what does Nehemiah do? What does he feel? Well, watch what he feels. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and accused the nobles and officials, and I told them, you're charging your own people interest. This is the first hint for uh, really the real problem. I mean, the problem seemed to surface as a complaint, okay? And and he could have tried to deal with the complaint and tried to appease parties and tried to encourage and things, things like that, but when you hear a complaint of this severity, it actually is a symptom of a deeper problem. And so as a leader, what does Nehemiah do? He says, I'm not just content to try to cajole everybody and make everybody get along and make peace. I've got to really go to the source of the problem. It's like when you go to the doctor and there's an issue on the surface and he says, hey, we need to do some tests. Yeah, you're experiencing this and we can treat the symptoms 
problems, but we really have to get to the heart of the problem. We've got to go deeper in this if we really want to rectify the situation. And so when he hears the outcry, he's very angry. Why was he so angry? Well, you get a hint of it when he says, you're charging your own people interest. You see, if you turn back to Leviticus 25, uh, Leviticus 25 lays out, uh, as Leviticus does, a lot of different things, but one of the main things it, uh, it does is it puts a, uh, parameters on interactions between God's people with one another. Why? Because, again, they had had a promise and an identity, and that identity was supposed to be a countercultural identity from the rest of the world. It was supposed to stand out. It was supposed to go against the grain of what's normal for all of us naturally to do, to drift toward. God put some perimeter, perimeters and parameters around, some guardrails around the people of God through the law to say, hey, I want to guide you back to some eternal principles so you can see me work in your society. And one of those things was, is if you lend money to someone, you can lend them money, but you cannot charge them interest and make profit over their demise. Because I want you to treat them differently. Matter of fact, he worked into Leviticus 25, uh, what was called the year of Jubilee, which was every 49th year, all property was returned to its original owner, and every debt was uh, basically written off the books. It was like, okay, if you've got a debt, we're just going to erase the debt. Uh, whoever had the property in the beginning 49 years ago, it's going to revert back to them. And that sounds ridiculous to us because we live in a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps world. We live our, in a world that says, hey, uh, might makes right, take care of number one, uh, advance your portfolio, build your future, get a bigger house, those kind of things. But the people of God had been given parameters so that they would stand out and not be drifted or drawn into the earthly cultural norms of everybody else around them. The other problem with that is through levying these, uh, these heaven, heavy, exorbitant amounts of interest on them and enslaving their kids, they were basically ensuring that they would be in generational poverty and enslavement for years to come. There was no way, as they were powerless, to actually come back and make up the difference on these interest charges. And so what does that mean? These nobles and officials that are named here, and these are the culprits that uh, begin to come to the surface, they become seen as the main issue. But this is not the first time we've been introduced to them. Matter of fact, we got introduced to them in Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, we glossed over it a little bit. We changed the names to protect the innocent a couple of weeks ago. And we said next to them, they took care of that wall. Next to them, that wall. Next to them, that part of the wall. They put this gate together. But what we did skip over was a little verse in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5, that introduces us to these very people. Nehemiah 3, 5. The next session was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Who are these people? This is a group of people that did not buy in to the presence of God and the mission of God. They stood on the outside, and they failed in, uh, to surrender, and they failed to submit, denied submission to the leaders of the building of wall. They would not allow themselves to be put into the place of servitude to the vision of God or to the other people. And what was the root of that? It was the same root it always is. It's one little word called pride. They had too much pride they had too much pride. They had too many things they were thinking about then. And this is the thing you know about pride. I mean, Scripture says this over and over again. Two Scriptures say the exact same thing in the New Testament. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
And so what do you see surface in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5? What do you see happen in Nehemiah chapter 5? What you begin to see happen is this thing called personal arrogance that comes in and begins to threaten the work on the wall. Personal arrogance. Remember what they said about them? I mean, the the rebuttal from the people of God was, even though our sons and daughters are just as good as theirs, that was their perspective. What was the nobles and officials' perspective toward them? No, my kids are better. My family's more important. My future's at stake. To heck with you. I'm going to take whatever I got to take and do whatever I have to do. When I see your problem, I see my opportunity. Personal arrogance. Fueled, as it always does, leading into personal advancement. I'm going to use your predicament in life for my personal advancement. It's such a narrow focus. Nehemiah's vision, as I said, was not really about the wall. It was about the people. And then you really get to see it in Nehemiah chapter 5 because the the focus in this whole passage is not actually about the wall. There's no talk really of the wall. There's only talk of the people because that's what God had been building all along, right? I mean, he'd been trying to bring back a national identity, a place where they were walking in God's presence and obeying his laws and, and seeing him work in their midst. It was not as much about the physical physical structure as it was about the spiritual structure he was building. But a drift happened. And as the drift happened, things begin to drift toward chaos. Because that's what always happens when personal arrogance and personal advancement get involved in God's work. You don't think it's true. I mean, look over to Jesus' brother James, James chapter 3. It describes this exact same situation in New Testament terms. This is what James says. He says, who's wise and understanding among you Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. What were the front things we're introduced to? Bitter envy, selfish ambition. Now watch what happens as James breaks that down. Verse 15. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You know, we treat demonic things like the things that are what we would say in this day are our biggest adversaries, the cultural wars out there where there's people that believe different than us. You know, they believe different, and so that's demonic. We've got to stay away from that. Uh, We talk about stuff in the political realm, and we look for political answers. And we say, well, we vilify or demonize people of different beliefs or different parties and different things like that. But what we fail to miss oftentimes is that the most demonic things are not the outside things. Oftentimes the most demonic things are the things we've allowed to drift into our thinking, namely bitter envy and selfish ambition. He says if that's what you pursue, it is earthly, unspiritual, and at its core is a demonic idea. How so? Well, verse 16 tells us, watch what he says. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. What is envy? Envy is basically greed. It's basically, I want what I want for me. 
And you don't have to have a lot to have envy, and you can have a lot and have envy. It's always about the next thing. I have to have more. I have to have my feel. I've got to have my identity felt by uh, something that I don't yet have. And so you push, you push, you push. This personal arrogance says, I need this. I deserve this. I want this. And it is always coupled with selfish ambition, which is personal advancement. I've got to have power. I've got to have position. I need people to look to me. I need to be the one that they run to. I, want to, I don't want to be the borrower. I want to be the lender. And, and, I, and it's not for a good way. I want people to need me. You know, I want people to want to be me, and I want them to need me. And so what does he say? Where you have envy and you have selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. What do you find? Chaos. The drift away from God's vision is always a drift toward disorder and chaos. If you've ever been in a church where there's been chaos, there's been two components that have taken place. There's been envy and there's been selfish ambition. And it could have been two parties, it could have been two groups, or it could have been a whole church and multiple people. If you've ever been in a business that was chaotic, Probably, most evidently, what happened on your job site was there was envy and selfish ambition that became the competing terms with your existence. That's the way it works. In your family, there's a problem between you and your husband or you and your wife or you and your kids. What's the problem oftentimes? Envy and selfish ambition. And anytime those two things are prevalent, it is a formula for disorder and chaos. And it is a license in the mind of the holder of those two qualities for every evil practice. Everything that was once right or wrong is now gray. Everything becomes circumstantial and situational. It's whatever I can do to advance myself, to meet the urgent need that I have in front of me for my own personal advancement and my own personal benefit. And so if you boil that whole concept down, what was Nehemiah experience and what was Jane describing, you can boil it down to a little simple formula. Personal arrogance plus personal advancement always equals corporate chaos. Anytime it happens. And that's what was experienced, being experienced with the people of God in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 5. Envy, selfish ambition at the expense of others. Every evil practice doesn't matter what you do as long as you're taking care of you. That's what was going on. So, what do you do? We said, what does he feel? Nehemiah feel, but the question is not just what does he feel, because you can be angry and be powerless, but what does he actually do? What do you do if you've drifted into this, or if your family's drifted in this, or your church, or your business has drifted into this? Well, let's see what Nehemiah does to bring it right. Nehemiah chapter five, I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. What does he do? He brings everybody together. He calls the nobles and officials into the same room with the people that they've loaned the money to and put into slavery. And, and just as a side note, people say, well, okay, how do you, how do you know who ought to have in the room? And just as a rule of thumb, it's the, the circle of the, the meeting has to include the circle of the offense. Okay, And so he brings both parties into the room, and he doesn't just go to the nobles and say, hey, listen, guys, let up. I'm trying to build this wall over here. You can help me. Just don't charge so much interest. And he doesn't just go over here to the families and say, listen, just let's get this wall built and let me work on it, and I'll figure it out. Just kind of be patient with me. No, he says, we have to deal with this. 
let's bring it in the room, and let's talk about all these things. And so he confronts the nobles and officials after seeking the Lord, and he says, we just brought all these guys back. And we didn't just bring them back, we bought them back. It costs money. We, we, out of Babylonian captivity and Persian captivity, they just got home, getting settled, and here you are putting them back into slavery. Matter of fact, that's what he says in the next part of the verse. He says, now this, going to the next verse. It says, now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Have you ever been confronted about something and you knew you were wrong and you were caught? I mean, you might have to go back to him when you are a kid or, you know, it was on the job or I don't know what happened in your life, but it's that moment when you know there's nothing else you can say. And you're standing in front of your accuser and you know they're right. You're standing in front of the people you heard or you hurt and you know they're hurt and you caused it. And you're standing in your own flesh and you have to answer the question, what have I become? What kind of person would do that to somebody else? And then you stand in front of God and you say to God, God, I, I, I don't know how I got there. These are your people and not my own. And you know that you've hurt the accuser, you've hurt the people, you've hurt God, and ultimately you've hurt yourself. What do you do? Well, you do what Nehemiah did. You close your mouth. I mean, what the guys did in Nehemiah's presence, you close your mouth because you have nothing left to say. And so what does he do? He doesn't let up. He pushes on the gas. In verse 9, he says this. I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of, the Gentile, of our Gentile enemies? Didn't we just get out of captivity that was caused by our own sinfulness and junk like this? What you're doing is not right. Because what happens when envy and selfish ambition come in, right? Every disorder, every kind of evil deed becomes okay. Everything becomes fuzzy. Things you never would have done before considered are okay now in your mind because you're, you're clouded by your personal arrogance. You're clouded by your personal advancement. And so you get this chaos that's happening on, but it's not just out there. It's happening in here and everything's fuzzy and you can't figure out what you're supposed to do. And so what does Nehemiah do? Is he does a very simple thing. He says, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God? And so when the drift has happened and chaos is ensuing, how do you get back? Is it enough just to sit there and say, I'm sorry? Have you ever had somebody say to you, uh, they're sorry, but they said it like this, I'm sorry about the way that made you feel? You may experience that. And you're like, well, that's not an apology. Sorry for what? Well, I'm sorry that it hurts you. That's not an apology. I'm asking you to forgive me because I've done something wrong. That is an apology. So what does it take to return back and to actually con continue to build the wall but to build God's people back, it starts with one simple thing. As personal arrogance came in and personal advancement came in, it's really one simple thing, personal repentance. How are you going to turn the ship? Personal repentance. Repentance basically means I was going this way and now I'm going to turn around and go the other way. I'm going to do things differently. So what were the things that make up the personal repentance that Nehemiah was calling for? It's the same thing that happens in our lives today when you've drifted. The first thing is you have to recognize a standard. You have to recognize a standard. What did he say? What you're doing is not right. 
to acknowledge the fact that there is a right and there is a wrong and you are on the wrong side of the equation. You have to start with repentance by recognizing that there is a standard. That's why sin is often called a trespass. A trespass is an established boundary. It's like if somebody says, don't trespass or no trespassing signs up on the property and you get that little feeling when you walk by and you're like going, huh, take that, right? You ever had that, that, you know, compelling to do something like that? That's a trespass. It's a willful disobedience to cross an established boundary. That's why what we're talking about here is sin and not a mistake. A mistake is when you trip because the floor is slippery or because you, you, you've, you, know, you couldn't see something and you made a mistake. It's like you fell into it. These guys didn't fall in the situation, and most situations that we are in are not ones we fell in. They're ones we walk in because we cross established boundaries. So how do you get back? You first you have to do is you have to recognize the standard, recognize the boundary. What you're doing is not right. But not just that. Because right and wrong, you say, well, hey, what makes it right? What makes it wrong? Well, what's right to you may be wrong to me. What's wrong to me may be right to you. It's kind of subjective, right? Can there be an objective standard? But that's not all that he calls them to. What you're doing is not right. What is, what's the second part of the equation? Recognizing an authority. Repentance always means recognizing a standard, but recognizing the authority behind the standard. Shouldn't you fear God? Because here's what sin is. Sin, not being a mistake, is saying to God, God, you're not God, I am. I get to decide what I do. And my little world that I'm creating over here, that's the most important thing to me. And so I'm going to secure my future because I don't trust you to do it. I'm going to secure my present because I don't trust you to do it. I'm going to take care of my own because I'm the only one I can trust. And so I am God. And you can never repent by just saying, hey, I'm sorry. You can never repent by just saying, yeah, that was wrong. You ultimately have to say, I'm not the authority. God's the authority. Think about your life right now where there's chaos in your life. Family, relationships, internal. How many of those things could be rectified by beginning with a recognizing of a standard and a recognizing of the authority and all that he is? Everything in our lives can ultimately begin there. There might be a lot to unpack There might be a lot to dig through. There might be a lot of decisions that come down the pipe because of it, but ultimately, repentance begins with a standard and recognizing authority. And that's the only way things ultimately change. And so what does he call them to do? He calls them simply to repentance. Now, what, how does that take place? I mean, what, what, what goes on there? Well, look in verse 10 and follow along with their story and see if it looks like yours at all. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. Nehemiah saying, hey, we're doing the same thing. We're trying to give them food. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. What does he say? He says repentance means doing something different. You are doing that. It's not just saying, hey, guys, I'm sorry. Sorry doesn't pay the bills. Sorry doesn't get food in their belly. Sorry doesn't bring the kids home. What does he call them to do? He calls them to change and to do something differently. So what do they respond with? Verse 12. 
We will give it back, they said, and we'll not demand anything more from them. We'll do as you say. And then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. So what happens? Ultimately, the personal repentance led into a couple of things. Uh, it, the main one of which was personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. They took responsibility for their act, and by doing so, what did they do? They stopped taking, and they started giving. Isn't that what Nehemiah called them to do? Quit charging interest and quit taking stuff. Give it back and give more than you took. Start giving. I mean, isn't that the model of what repentance is? It's, it's an action. It's not just, I'm sorry, I'm broken. It starts there, but it never ends there. It's taking responsibility. And if you're ever wanting change from the drift that's happening in your life, listen, everybody drifts. I drift. We all drift. But the grace of God that we sang about this morning allows us the opportunity through repentance to be brought back by the grace of God, the gift of God that he did not have to do in order to bring us into right relationships so that we can stop taking and we can start giving. That's the model of the cross, is it not? Well, you see it as you finish up in verse 13, his personal responsibility, and he gives them a warning. He says, I also shook off the folds of my robe and I said, in this way, <coughs> excuse me, may God shake out of their household, uh, their house and possessions, anyone who does not keep this promise. Basically said, hey, if, they don't, if this doesn't happen, shake them out, shake the possessions out, call them into account. Say, so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. We've got a lot of formulas going on here, but I think it's the easiest way to see this. So, ultimately, the personal arrogance and the personal agendas or advancement led to corporate chaos. What Nehemiah is attempting to do is he's attempting to bring everybody back together for consensus. And so, if there's a formula for drift and chaos, what's the formula for consensus? Well, it's real simple. You just saw it. Personal repentance plus personal responsibility equals corporate consensus. If you've ever been a part of a family, a team, a church where things are going well and you can't wait till you get there, it's because there's power in the room, there's excitement in the room, there's energy in the room, there's strong relationships in the room, things are going well. What has happened is there's been a group of people that have humbled themselves through repentance and have taken their mantle of responsibility for the corporate good. And when that happened, what happened in that case was this, is that at the end of the day, both the nobles and the officials and the ones that had everything taken from them, and Nehemiah himself, they all said amen together. What does amen mean? So be it. What you've said, hold us to. This is the glue for who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do as the people of God. And so if you boil it all down to its basic thing, what you begin to see is you can see a unified consensus people that's been brought about by the Holy Spirit through humility and repentance. Why? Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so if that's true, then how do you know if a group is unified based on this passage? Well, very simply, the first sign of unity is generosity. 
the first sign of unity is generosity. Why? Because generosity is the decision point. When you look at what you have and you make the decision, is this only for me? Is my security in this? Is my trust in this? Is my position in this? Is my power in this? Is my future in this? Or is God giving this to me to become a blessing to somebody else so that I can trust him with my future and not myself? When you're in a place like that, that's a magnetic place. That's what you see in Acts chapter 2 when the, they sold property and they brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet and they said, hey, distribute it however you will because we want to be a blessing with what we have. Any church that you've ever been a part of that was growing and thriving, it was because there was a group of people that were unified and the act of generosity was evident in the group of people. Why? Because it's a decision point between trust in me and personal advancement and personal arrogance and the greater good of what God's trying to do, where I move from building my kingdom to building his. So what's the first sign of disunity? Simply greed. Now, we don't like to use that word because none of us thinks we're greedy, <laughs> right? Because some of us think, well, don't you have to have money to be greedy? And I don't, have, I don't seem to have a lot of it, you know? And it's not like adultery. Listen, if you're committing adultery, you know you're committing adultery. Can we just be honest, Right? If you steal something from Walmart and you stick it in your pocket or your purse and you walk out to the parking lot with it, you know you're stealing. That's a black and white thing. You know, if you murder somebody, you know you do that. But greed is one of those things that it's hard to see in ourselves. I don't feel like I'm greedy most of the time. Most of the time, I feel like I'm trying to be responsible or I'm, I'm just trying to take care of me or something like that. But Oftentimes, what I don't realize is envy has crept into my heart, and I've drifted. And selfish ambition has crept into my heart, and I've drifted. And I wake up, and I realize that I'm seeing chaos in my life because I've tried to control my future myself. And the people around me are hurting. The family's hurting. The church is hurting. Extended family's hurting. People in the world are definitely hurting because God's people are living with a heart of greed rather than a heart of generosity. So what's the first sign? Generosity. What's the first sign of disunity? Greed. And when you get to the gospel, the gospel is built on that very principle, is it not? Generosity is saying, I can take what I have, and I can use it for me, or I can lay it down. And the cross was an opportunity where God stepped in, and he says, hey, listen, I've got all the wealth of the world, and I've got everything you need, and I could put you in bondage, and I could keep you where you are, and I could lock you away and throw away the key generationally forever and ever, but instead what I do is I generously lay down my life for you. I give you everything. I hold nothing back from you. And I don't have to do it, but I choose to do it. And in the face of that, there's a lesson that the early disciples learned one day had some guys come up to him of the 12 that followed Jesus around, James and John, and one account says their mom did it, but however you see the thing going down, it's embarrassing. They come up to Jesus and say, hey, when you get to your spot, Jesus, can one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left? Can we sit with you in glory? And it says the rest of the guys heard him ask that, and they became indignant. I mean, they were incensed. They were angry with him. And I, I kind of think it's because they thought, well, I should have asked first. Because we all think that way. 
And Jesus circled them all up and he says, hey, you know how the Gentiles do that you've been a part of? At that time it was the Romans, not the Persians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians. It was the Romans. He says, how they lord it over you, their power, and they use it for themselves. You know how they do that? Well, let me tell you a little bit different way. And in Mark 10, 30, Mark 10, 30, 43 through 45, this is how he says, this is not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greed puts people into slavery. The gospel pulls people out of slavery. He pays the ransom for you and for me. And he does that to correct the disciples. And Nehemiah did it to correct the Israelites. And today it's a way for us to remember, as many of us drift through life, what is the core of our faith? And it's not that we can earn our way to him. It's that he paid a ransom for us. It's, that, it's not that we gave to him first. It says that we can't even love him until he first loves us. We don't even know what love is apart from him. Everything that we have in return to him started with him. And so this is an opportunity for us today to say, God, if you're going to build uni unity into us, remove arrogance and personal advancement, envy and selfish ambition from us. And God, instill in us an awareness of a standard and an awareness of an authority. And Lord, we want to take responsibility for that and we want to begin to enact principles in our life to line up with those things so that you can begin to do the work to detach our hearts from ourselves, our desires that are there. Because I lack faith in so many areas. And maybe you've been there when you've decided, hey, I'm going to start giving or I'm going to start serving or I'm going to start blessing somebody else and there's this little tinge of doubt in you and say, well, well wouldn't it be better if you just took that and held on to it yourself? Because you never know. I mean, don't you need that? You know, it's what you could do with that. And man, that's your time. and You deserve that. But that's not what Jesus called us to do. And that's not the principle unpacked in Nehemiah chapter 5. And so what I want to do today is simply I want to ask the Lord to weave that into us and weave it into me, not just you guys, but me too. And he would make us into a generous people and a unified people. And so I want to ask if you would, if you bow your head and close your eyes, the application today is a very personal one. It's one for you to sit before God and ask God to open up your heart, to lay it bare in front of him, to reveal to you where you really are and what he wants to free you from, he wants to free you from yourself. That's why he paid a ransom. And so I want to take just a second as you're praying, and I want to affirm a couple of things. One of those is this, is, man, I want to thank so many of you. This is a very generous and unified church. I mean, I, I think about, um, I was kind of assessing over the last couple of days just as I was going about the day, and I was thinking about like everything that's been invested here, whether it be time and resources and energy or finances and it's mind-blowing to think about the faithfulness of God's people, and that's you. And I just want to affirm that in you and say, keep going. You know, as many of you give financially, that's a, you, you've been doing that. Many of you have been serving, keep doing that. I just want to say thank you for a generous spirit 
for all that you're doing for the kingdom of God, to build what God's building here. We get to see the results of that. When every time we baptize somebody, every time we dedicate a baby, every time uh, we share Christ with someone, every time we send a mission trip, every time that we bless our community, we get to see that, and, and that's because of you. But for all of us, there's always a time to assess. And when I ask, I'm going to pray over all of us today and ask God to do that work in us. And at the end, just kind of like Nehemiah in Nehemiah's day, I'm going to ask at the end, I'm going to call you to say amen with me, every voice in the room, every person. It would be a way for us to say, so be it about us. So be it about our family here. This is who we want to be. You have our heart, God. You have our futures. You have our trust. So when I call for that, let's say amen together, but let's begin this way. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you right now for that ransom that was paid by Christ. You certainly did not have to do that, but you chose to lay your life down. You became our sin so that we could become your righteousness. You welcomed us in when we should have been thrown out. You didn't give us what our sin deserved. And so because of that, God, we come to you as humble people, needy people, recognizing, God, our brokenness and the drift that we all feel that we're compelled to pull away and leads us to chaos in our lives. It pulls away from our intentions and our promises. It's our flesh. It's our broken spirit, God. But you come in and you give us a new heart. God, through your gospel, you make us new. Every, all old has passed away. Everything's become new. And so we want to begin to walk in that identity if you've created us to be. Lord, we want to experience the freedom of not having to trust ourselves, but being able to trust you. God, we want to realize that there is a standard, God, that there is an authority in our life. And we want to walk in obedience to you. But we need your empowerment through your spirit to do that. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit spirit that resides in us and guides us to truth and convicts us of sin and binds us together so we could experience the mutual sharing of grace together. Our prayer, God, is that you would craft us into a generous people. Lord, not just that we would give money for the building of buildings and projects, but God, that we would build up your church, which is your people. And God, that you would call us to be the blessing, the conduit of blessing to this community and to the world. I pray, God, that you would make us into that and you would shore up the weaknesses in each of our lives so that we could become that and we invite your presence to work powerfully through us today. Lord, in order to do that, we realize that all of us have to be uh, to be transformed by your grace. And so I pray for the person in here that may not know you. I pray that right now you'd reveal yourself to them and you call them to yourself, God. And I pray, God, that you give them the courage to call out to you right now and repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, as your ransomed and redeemed people, we call us out to you, God. And collectively we say, and the people of God said, amen.